The Fall of an Empire, The Lesson of Byzantium. In 1453, the Byzantine Empire fell. Let us now take a look at how this happened. This city was once called Constantinople. Six centuries ago, it was the capital city of what was, without exaggeration, one of the greatest civilizations in world history, the Byzantine Empire. A rule by law, something we now take for granted, was created here, based upon the Roman codes in Byzantium 1,500 years ago. A legal system which was to become the basic foundation of all types of laws in most modern governments was the monumental creation of Byzantine jurisprudence during the reign of Emperor Justinian. The system of elementary and higher education first developed in Byzantium. It was here in the 5th century that the first university appeared. The most stable financial system in the history of mankind was created in Byzantium and existed in a nearly unaltered form for over 1,000 years. Modern diplomacy, with its basic principles, rules of conduct and etiquette, was created and refined here in Byzantium. Byzantine engineering and architectural arts were unrivaled. Even today, famous works by Byzantine masters while the domes of the Hagia Sophia amazed the world with their technological perfection. No other empire in human history lasted as long as Byzantium. It existed for 1,123 years. In comparison, the great Roman Empire collapsed 800 years after its establishment. The Ottoman Empire fell apart after 500 years the Chinese Qing or Manchu Empire after 300 years. During its zenith, Byzantium was home to one-sixth of the entire world population. The empire stretched from Gibraltar to the Euphrates and Arabia. It encompassed the territories of modern Greece and Turkey, Israel and Egypt, Bulgaria, Serbia and Albania, Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco, part of Italy, Spain and Portugal. There were around 1,000 cities in Byzantium nearly as many as in modern Russia. The matter is that nationality problems in Byzantium really had not existed for many centuries, as the historical, lawful descendants of ancient Rome, which was destroyed by barbarians in the fifth century, the inhabitants of Byzantium called themselves Romans. In a vast empire divided into many nationalities, there was one faith, Orthodox Christianity, the Byzantines literally fulfilled the Christian teaching of a new humanity living in the divine spirit, where there is neither Greek nor Jew nor Scythe, as Apostle Paul wrote. This hope preserved the country from the destructive storm of ethnic conflict. 
It was enough for any pagan or foreigner to accept the orthodox faith and confirm it indeed in order to become a full member of society. On the Byzantine throne, for example, were almost as many Armenians as there were Greeks. There were also citizens of Syrian, Arabian, Slavic, and Germanic origin. Amongst the we are all Romans, orthodox citizens of the new Rome, they proclaim. The demographic problem was one of the most serious problems in Byzantium. The empire was gradually inhabited by peoples of a foreign spirit who firmly supplanted the native orthodox population. The country's ethnic composition changed visibly. This was, in some ways, an irreversible process, for the birth rate in Byzantium was decreasing. But this was not the worst thing. Something similar had earlier occurred periodically. The catastrophe was that the peoples who were pouring into the empire were no longer becoming Romans, as they once had done, but remained permanently foreign aggressive and enemy. Now the newcomers treated Byzantium not as their new homeland, but only as potential property, which should sooner or later come into their own hands. This happened also because the empire refused to educate the people. A concession it had made to the new Renaissance-era demagogy declaring state ideology to be a violation of the individual. However, nature abhors a vacuum. Having voluntarily renounced their thousand-year ideological function of educating and cultivating the people, the Byzantines made way for influences upon the minds and souls of the citizens, influences which were not so much a promotion of independent and free thinking as they were a form of intentional ideological aggression aimed at destroying the foundations of state and society. But the Byzantines had amazing, incomparable experience. The best leaders of the empire were capable of using their vast inheritance, a wealth of experience and governance and subordination. As a result of this acumen, cruel barbarians, after partaking of the great Christian culture, became the most reliable allies, received grandiose titles and vast estates, were numbered among the highest ranks of government service, and fought for the interests of the empire in the furthest stretches of its territory. As for demographic issues, the eternal headache of any empire, separatism in the outlying areas, the best Byzantine emperors left as an inheritance proven methods of solving these issues. For example, creating conditions for the massive resettlement of the inhabitants of centralized areas to the outlying provinces. This would quickly spark an explosion in the birth rate and effectuate an extraordinary adaptability to the new locality in the second generation. However, this wealth of experience was cruelly mocked and criminally disregarded in favor of foreign opinion. And finally, it was irretrievably lost. 
But just what was this invasive opinion, whose views do the Byzantines began to value? Who was able to so influence their minds that they began to commit such suicidal mistakes one after another? It's hard to believe that such enormous reverence and dependence could have developed with regard to the same once barbaric West, which had for centuries so enviously and greedily looked upon Byzantium's wealth and then coldly and systematically grew fat upon its gradual dissolution. Byzantium was a unique state which differed from both the East and the West. Everyone recognized this fact. Some were exhilarated by it. Others hated this independence, while others felt oppressed by it. Be this as it may, Byzantium's difference from the rest of the world was an objective reality. First of all, Byzantium was the only country in the world which stressed over a huge territory between Europe and Asia, and its geography was already a large contributing factor to its uniqueness. It's also a very important fact that Byzantium was a multinational empire by nature, in which the people felt the state to be one of their highest personal pressures. This was entirely incomprehensible to the Western world, where individualism and personal self-will had already been raised to the status of sacred principle. Byzantium's soul and its meaning of existence was orthodoxy, the unspoiled confession of Christianity, in which no dogmas had changed essentially for a thousand years. The West simply could not endure such demonstrative conservatism, called it undynamic, obtuse, and limited. It finally began with grim fanaticism to demand that Byzantium modernize her whole life in the Western image, first of all in the religious, spiritual spheres, and then in intellectual and material spheres. With respect to the uniqueness and particularity of Byzantium, the West, despite its occasional raptures over Byzantine civilization, pronounced the sentence, it must all be destroyed, if necessary, together with Byzantium and her spiritual inheritors. Not a bad organ, also invented and created in Byzantium. In the ninth century, it was brought here to Western Europe, and from that time on, as you see, it has taken root. Of course, it's senseless to say that the West was to blame for Byzantium's misfortunes and fall. The West was only pursuing its own interests, which is quite natural. Byzantium's historical blows occurred when the Byzantines themselves betrayed their own principles upon which their empire was established. These great principles were simple and known to every Byzantine from childhood. Faithfulness to God, to his eternal laws preserved in the Orthodox Church, and fearless reliance upon their own internal traditions and strengths. For hundreds of years, Byzantine emperors, both wise and not so wise, successful governors and inept commanders, saints on the throne and bloody tyrants, when faced with a fateful choice, 
knew that by following these two rules, they ensure their empire's ability to survive. In the Holy Scriptures, which every Byzantine knew, this is stated very specifically. I call heaven and earth to witness before you this day. I have offered you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that ye may live, and your descendants also. In Byzantium, after the end of the 13th centuries, two parties emerged. One called for reliance upon the country's internal strengths, to believe in them unconditionally, and to develop the country's colossal potential. It was prepared to accept Western European experience discriminately, after a serious test of time, but only in those cases where such changes would not touch the fundamental basics of the people's faith and state politics. The other party, pro-Western, whose representatives pointed to the indubitable fact that Europe is developing more rapidly and successfully, began to proclaim more and more loudly that Byzantium has historically exhausted itself as a political, cultural, and religious phenomenon, and to demand a root-level reworking of all state institutions in the image of the Western European countries. Representatives of the pro-Western party secretly or more often openly supported by European governments held an undoubted victory over the imperial traditionalists. Under their guidance, a series of important reforms took place, including those economic, military, political, and finally ideological and religious. All of these reforms ended in total collapse and led to such spiritual and material destruction in the empire that it remained absolutely defenseless before its eastern neighbor, the Turkish Sultanate. First of all, the pro-Western party began to re-evaluate its fatherland's history, culture, and faith. However, instead of healthy criticism, they offered only destructive self-abnegation. Everything Western was exalted, and everything of their own was held in contempt. Byzantine history was distorted, faith and tradition were mocked, and the army was degraded. The whole of Byzantium began to be painted as a sort of universal monster. The wealthy Byzantine younger generation no longer studied in its own country, but rather left to study abroad. The best minds of Byzantine science emigrated to the West. The state ceased to give them the proper attention. Emperor Theodore II foretold, Rejected science will become our enemy and will take up arms against us. It will either consign us to destruction or turn us into barbarians. I write this in a state of gloomy melancholy. The emperor's presentiment did not deceive him. During the final fatal attack on Constantinople, a brilliant metal-casting scholar, a Hungarian named Urban, offered to create for the emperor large artillery armaments, which could sweep away the Turkish troops. But treasury was empty, and the rich of Constantinople did not give any money. Not having received payments, the insulted Urban offered his services to Sultan Mehmed. The Sultan seized the opportunity, which would give him the capability to destroy the city's invincible walls. He provided unlimited funds and began the project. 
Finally, the canons of Urban, the best student of the Byzantine ballistic school, decided the empire's fate. Western reforms in the military along Western lines had begun long before this. In Byzantium, there had for many centuries existed a proven, although not always effective system called Stratiotis, a national regular army with mandatory service from the age of 18. With time, the Byzantine army underwent serious changes. An army of a new type required significant capital. The very stabilization fund of Basil II was earmarked precisely for the creation of an effective army. The fund, as we recall, was squandered, while decisions were made to totally revamp the army according to the image of a Western professional one. At that time, the Byzantine mind was captivated by the image of Western knights, all nailed into suits of armor, the latest achievement of contemporary military industry. My Byzantines are like clay pots, one emperor commented contemptuously about his warriors, but the Western knights are like iron kettles. To be brief, as a result of the reforms, they took apart the regular army, but never built a professional one. In the final analysis, they took the course of forming a bloc with the West within the framework of a new military political union. In practice, this meant that during the most critical periods of war, they were forced to resort to a professional army, but not of their own, to a mercenary one. What it means to have a mercenary army, how loyal and capable it is, the Byzantines learned from bitter experience. Attempting to rely on the West's experience, the state became more and more ineffective. Even so, they stubbornly sought salvation in a new imitation of Western examples. The final and most devastating blow to Byzantium was the ecclesiastical union with Rome. Formally, this was the submission of the Orthodox Church to the Roman Pope for a purely practical reasons. One after another aggressive attack from foreign nations forced the country to make the choice, either to rely on God and their own strengths, or to concede their age-long principles upon which their state was founded and receive in return military and economic aid from Latin West, and the choice was made. In 1274, Emperor Mikhail Paleologos decided upon a root concession to the West. For the first time in history, ambassadors from the Byzantine Emperor were sent to Lyon to accept the supremacy of the Pope of Rome. As it turned out, the advantages the Byzantines received in exchange for their ideological concession were negligible. The pro-Western party's calculations not only were unjustified, they collapsed. The union with Rome did not continue for long. The Grecophil Pope Leo IV, who had drawn Byzantium into the union out of better intentions, died soon after the union was concluded, and his successor turned out to be of a completely different spirit. The interests of the Latin West were first on his list. He demanded that Byzantium change completely, that it remake itself in the image and likeness of the West. When these changes did not happen, the Pope excommunicated his newly-baked spiritual son, Emperor Michael Paleologus, and called Europe to a new crusade against Byzantium. 
The Orthodox converts to Catholicism were pronounced bad Catholics. The Byzantines were supposed to get the point that the West needed only complete and unconditional religious and political submission. Not only the Pope was to be recognized as infallible, but the West itself as well. Another terrible loss from betrayal of the faith was the loss of trust amongst the people and the government. The Byzantines were shocked by the betrayal of their highest value, orthodoxy. They saw it was possible for the government to play with the most important thing in life, the truce of the faith. The meaning of the Byzantines' existence was lost. This was the final and main blow which destroyed the country. And although by far not all accepted the Union, the people's spirit was broken. In place of their former thirst for life and energetic resolve to action, there appeared a terrible general apathy and fatigue. The people no longer wanted to live. This horror has happened during various periods in history, with various peoples and with entire civilizations. This is how the ancient Hellenic people died out, amongst whom an inexplicable demographic crisis occurred during the first centuries of AD. People did not want to live. They did not want to continue their generation. The rare families that did form often had no children. The children who were born died from lack of parental care. Abortions became common practice. The darkest occult and Gnostic cults came aggressively to the forefront, cults characterized by hatred for life. Suicide became one of the main causes of death amongst the population. This conscious dying out of a population has been called by science endogenous psychosis of the first third centuries, a mass pathology and loss of meaning for continued existence. Something similar happened in Byzantium after the conclusion of the Union. The crisis in state ideology led to total pessimism. Spiritual and moral decline began to take over, along with unbelief, interest in astrology, and the most primitive superstitions. Alcoholism became a true scourge of the male population. A morbid interest in long-forgotten mysteries of the ancient Greeks arose. An intelligentsia fascinated with neo-paganism consciously and cynically destroyed the foundations of Christian faith in the people. Processes of depopulation and family crises ensued. Out of the 150 Byzantine intellectuals known to us to have lived during the late 14th, early 15th centuries, only 25 had families of their own. This is only a small part of what came to Byzantium due to the decision amongst the elite to sacrifice higher ideals for the sake of practical advantages. The soul collapsed in a great nation who had given the world grandiose examples of flights of spirit, now reigned unbridled cynicism and squabbles. One Russian pilgrim wrote bitterly during the mid-14th century, 
Greeks are those who have no love. best minds of Byzantium watched with sorrow as the empire gradually died, but no one heeded their warnings. The high-profile statesman, Theodore Metohit, who saw no salvation for Byzantium, wept over the former greatness of the Romans and their perished happiness. He lamented the empire wasted by illnesses, easily succumbing to every attack by its neighbors, and become the helpless victim of fate and eventuality. A new union, signed in Florence, in what was now a completely mad hope for help from the West, did not change a thing. For the Byzantines themselves, this was a new moral blow of great magnitude. Now not only the emperor, but even the holy patriarch shared the faith of the Latins. However, despite various hierarchs' betrayals, the Orthodox Church stood firm. All were against the union, a Byzantine historian relates. O piteous Romans, monk Gennadios Scolarios wrote prophetically from his reclusion after the signing of the Florentine Union and 14 years before the fall of Constantinople. Why have you gone astray from the right path? You have departed from the hope in God and begun to hope in the might of the Franks. Together with the city in which everything will soon be destroyed, have you apostatized from your piety? Be merciful to me, O Lord. I witness before the face of God that I am not guilty of this. Return, wretched citizens, and think about what you are doing. Together with the captivity which will soon befall us, you have apostatized from your father's inheritance and begun to confess dishonor. Woe to you when God's judgment shall come upon you. of Gennadius Scolarius came true to the letter, and he himself was to carry the unbearably heavy cross of a bitter patriarchate, he became the first Orthodox patriarch in Constantinople after its fall to the Turks. The fatal year of 1453 was approaching. In April, Sultan Mehmed, still a very young man of 21, about the age of a college sophomore in today's Istanbul, attacked Constantinople. The Sultan was absolutely delirious with the idea of taking the Romans' capital. His elder counselors, viziers, one of whom was a secret agent from Byzantium, persuaded him to cancel the attack saying that it was too dangerous to battle on two fronts, for all were certain that battalions from Genoa and Venice would arrive any minute. But the Sultan turned out to be a disobedient pupil. The promised help from Europe, of course, did not arrive.
To the party of westernizers in Constantinople, there was also added a pro-Turkish party. Sad as it may be, there was no true Byzantine imperial party amongst the politicians. The Turkish party was headed by the first minister and admiral, Grand Duke Notaras. He announced for all to hear that it would be better to see the Turkish Chalma cap ruling in the city than the Latin tiara. A little later, he, the first minister, was to fully experience just what this ruling Turkish Chalma cap was actually like. When Sultan Mehmed II took the city, amidst the general pillage and wild mayhem, he decided to appoint this very notaris as head of the city. However, when he learned that the Grand Duke had a 14-year-old son of rare beauty, he demanded that the son be first surrendered to his harem of boys. When the Sheikh and Notaris refused, the Sultan commanded that both he and the boy be beheaded. The terrible outcome was unfolding inescapably. O heavenly king, comforter, spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good gifts and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, O good one. May 29, 1453, after a siege lasting many months and resisted heroically by the city's defense forces, the Turks were able to break through the upper wall. The defense forces, frightened, turned to flight. The last Byzantine emperor, Constantine Paleologus, remained alone, abandoned by all. Holding his sword and shield, the emperor exclaimed, is there not a Christian who might take off my head? But there was no one to answer. The enemy surrounded him, and after a brief siege, the Turks standing behind the sovereign killed him with a knife in the back. Research in Byzantology was reopened in Russia by a decision from the highest government levels. In 1943, at Stalin's orders, the Institute of Byzantology was created, and a corresponding department in the Moscow State University was opened. Was there no other time than 1943 to open such an institute? It is simply that the former seminarian, Joseph Jugashvili, finally understood from whom they should be studying history. And the great city of Constantinople, which had oft-times forgotten the ancient laws of its fathers, for which forgetfulness it did not even preserve its own name, performs, if only its final service, as an instructor to retell the story of its greatness and of the monumental fall of a great empire. Allah.